You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thank you for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by Exonius. Time is the enemy of security, and that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and show which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Try it free at exonius.com backslash RSAC. We have a great podcast lined up for you today, How to Apply Pandemic Principles to Battle Cyber Outbreaks. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask our guests, Steve and Manisha, to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. Steve? Hi, this is Steve Farouk. Uh, I am a cybersecurity manager at IBM. Uh, In my role, I uh, manage a team of about a dozen cybersecurity subject matter experts that help with threat hunting and incident response um, for our clients uh, spanning across businesses and healthcare organizations. I hold a master's from Columbia University and also hold certifications in both cybersecurity and cloud security. And my expertise include, I would say, incident response, malware detection, uh, data loss prevention, and security information and event management. Thanks for having me today. I'm Dr. Manisha Jutani. I'm an associate professor of medicine and epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine and an infectious diseases specialist. In those capacities, I see patients with infectious diseases and have been on the front line of this COVID pandemic. In addition, I have supervisory and administrative responsibilities that have had me supervising a number of infectious disease doctors who normally would take care of all patients with infectious diseases, but particularly COVID patients currently during this pandemic. And I also do research on infections in older adults, which has opened the door to experience in nursing home settings and other hospitalized settings where COVID-19 has had significant impact. Truly fascinating. And thank you so much for all that you have done on the front lines of responding to this pandemic. And thank you both so much for joining us today. This is truly, for me, a fascinating topic. I love the intersection of human beings and security, and I think that we're well on our way of exploring those a little more in depth for our listeners. It seems like we've been in the throes of this pandemic for a while now. But if you look back to a year ago today, many of us were really unfamiliar with COVID-19 and certainly hadn't started to feel the impact of the stay-in-place orders at this point, even last year. Suffice it to say, we've learned a lot, so much that we can even start to apply these learnings to the cybersecurity industry. So my first question to you both is, what do travel quarantines and firewalls, using a mask and port closures have in common And what is the impact of travel in spreading human and cyber infections? Steve, why don't we start with you? Sure thing. Biological pandemics and cyber outbreaks have striking similarities. Um, Binary-coded cyber malware or an RNA-coded biological virus outbreak have more things in common than we really care to admit. 
coronavirus infected its first 100,000 humans over a period of approximately 10 weeks. And if you look at a cyber infection like WannaCry, it infected 300,000 computers over the span of about nine hours. At the heart of such lightning-fast spread points uh, us to the interconnected nature of the society today. We've all heard that the world is getting smaller. Fast and frequent air travel enabled um, 7 billion of us to connect with each other across the planet. But when these 7 billion humans are not physically next to each other, we want to connect using social media, FaceTime. That gave the rise to about 31 billion connected devices over the Internet. Needless to say, our world is a more connected place than ever. However, on the flip side, this interconnected nature has exponentially increased the infection and spread of virus, both in the human world and the cyber one. So when a pandemic or cyber outbreak hits, we want to block the transmission of the virus. Pathogens such as SARS-CoV-2 spread via sharing of respiratory droplets, where malware such as WannaCry or NotPetya propagates through sharing of code or malicious files, often called payloads. Malware codes or files could be equivalent to these droplets, and computers could be equivalent to hosts. In the human world, we don't want the infected host to travel and carry the virus and expose the virus to healthy humans. That's why we restrict travel through quarantine. In the cyber world, we want to use firewall to stop the transmission of the data that includes infection and payloads. Techniques such as using a mask could prevent the droplets from getting out through our nose or nostrils, travel through air, and get in contact with a healthy human. Malware could transmit and get in contact with other computers via ports such as a USB port or virtual ports such as an HTTP or SSH. So much like using a mask to cover your nose, which is equivalent to a port in your body, we want to block the USB port or SSH port so these malware codes cannot get in touch with healthy computers. You know, Steve, I think you bring up some really fascinating observations about the similarities of the way viruses have affected computers and technology and the way that viruses that we deal with in the human world. And, you know, obviously the term virus has been taken up by the technological world because of the way that it operates similar to viruses that occur in human beings. And I think this COVID-19 pandemic has just highlighted where these similarities lie that maybe we have all known about in theory and which is why the term virus is even used uh, in the cyber world. But I think it's really just brought to light exactly where those similarities lie. And so, you know, to to the point of um, travel quarantines and firewalls, uh, you know, I think that just highlights how putting a block, putting that distance, stopping the virus in its tracks is the only way that we can prevent it from going further. Secondly, you know, wearing a mask, it's more at the local level. So, you know, as opposed to, you know, more broad scale 
interventions that can be done, like a travel quarantine, a wearing a mask is at the individual level, at the computer level, let's say, at the device level. And so I think that these parallels really help us in being able to translate what we've learned in the scientific world in terms of what happens in viruses and in biology with what happens in the cyber world. Yeah, it's fascinating just listening to both of you because, you know, I'm so intrigued by this topic because... I can understand humans better. I don't come from a technical background. But, Steve, I'm just wondering how much, you know, the reverse is true for you, that learning more and understanding better that um, perspective that Manisha has about the spread of viruses in humans and controlling that, how much does that help to inform what you do in your cyber work? Cyber... Security can learn so much um, from pandemics and apply the pandemic principles to battle better, you know, and be more effective when they're hit with cyber outbreaks. It's really eye-opening. And that's why I kind of, you know, have taken it on myself and also am using COVID to spread the awareness in the cyber community, um, such as, you know, RSA conference, using forums such as RSA conference, where all the cyber security experts are coming together. I think that we have so much to learn from um, experts such as Manisha as they're battling, Mm. you know, and and being the first responders on the front line. So, you know, I think one thing that is important to realize in this also And I think this is applicable to both our worlds. You know, a lot of people are aware right now of the new variant, for example, the UK variant. I'm sure the same occurs in the cyber world where maybe you have a virus, but then there's a little difference that occurs in a virus that's spreading where it's trying to, you know, bypass maybe a patch that's been put in place or something of the like where, you know, you have to constantly adapt and maneuver to changes in the virus. Do you agree, Steve, with that in your world? Oh, 100%. And I don't, you know, want to pretend I know a lot about human viruses, so correct me, but I want to say that we kind of have hit a point in the cyber world that viruses are, are mutating at a rate that we cannot really control or, or remediate uh, in a sustainable manner. So now, instead of focusing on coming up with antivirus, we now had to switch gears and start analyzing the behavior, you know, through anomaly detection. So what would be uh, the behavior of a, of a healthy computer versus an infected one? And when we see an infection, um, which would be manifested through unhealthy behavior, let's say, and that could be analogous to, let's say, high fever in humans, right? Mm-hmm. Then we want to take action, perhaps, you know, take it off the network so it cannot spread the virus, even though we don't really know what the virus is at that point. But we know that we we must quarantine it, right, um, so that we could then perform forensic investigation on it that could give us an indication of perhaps, you know, a, a zero-day threat or a patient zero in your world, Manisha. So, so 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, just to build on that a little bit more, it's very analogous to what we do with patients where, let's say, you have a fever or cough or fatigue or not feeling right, 
you may get a COVID test, but that may not come back right away. And we take you offline in your language to sort of say, okay, you're going to start to quarantine until you know or isolate, particularly is really the right word for the infected person. We're going to have you start to isolate before we even know the results of your test, take you offline because we don't want you potentially infecting somebody else. Manisha, I just want to jump in here with a follow-up to that, because how does that quarantining of the individual, even if they don't have the positive test, but they have the symptoms, how does quarantining stop the spread, and what does quarantine really mean in both the human and the cyber world? So in the human world, we have two terms, just to clarify, because I kind of mixed them up in the way that I was explaining them. So the word quarantine really refers to when we say somebody may have been exposed to this virus and we are going to separate that person from other people, even though they may not be infected because we are afraid that they may become infected. Isolation refers to the term once we know for sure that somebody actually has the infection, that we isolate them because we know that they're infectious and could infect somebody else. So the idea of quarantine is that we know you've been exposed. We don't know if you're going to become infected, and that's the term that people have become familiar with and what so far has been basically 14 days where we sort of take people offline and say, you are going to stay away from other people. We know with COVID-19 that there is a lot of asymptomatic spread, that there are people who are not flagrantly infected and having cough, fever, and spreading it to others with those types of symptoms. They might just be talking and able to spread it to others. And then there's the concept of the super spreader, which is that a given person, and we don't understand exactly why this is, but a given person may be more likely to have a lot of infectious particle in their upper airway where they are able to transmit that virus to a lot more people than another infected person. This is true for a lot of infectious diseases. We don't really understand why it is that one person may be a super spreader and somebody else may not be a super spreader. And so quarantine is important because we don't know who may turn out to be a super spreader. We may not, we don't know who may be somebody who's just not as infectious as a super spreader, but still able to manifest symptoms and, and transmit to others or even transmit asymptomatically. So that is the reason for quarantine, and isolation is obvious. If you obviously have the infection, well, then you certainly could transmit it to others, and so you need to be isolated. Right. And Steve, how does that transfer to the cyber world? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, And there is, again, so much similarity. So in the cyber world, there are many forms of quarantine, uh, but also isolation, and also, but also um, sandboxing. And this is probably um, one that might be slightly different, or even perhaps you know something that healthcare can learn from. Let's say an infection occurs, or we suspect an infection, and so we want to take it offline, um, similar to what Manisha was talking about. There are technologies today to take uh, an, a machine and an endpoint offline so that we now have mitigated the risk of that suspicious machine to spread the disease, if you will, or the virus. 
So that's a you know kind of like an endpoint uh, quarantine, and that could be done actually very quickly. And uh, often it becomes part of an incident response technique, where when we suspect anything suspicious or an infection, then we would do it you know almost in an automated manner. Then we also have the ability to quarantine, uh, let's say, an email. So. Often, as you know, uh, these infections spread through emails. So when we see a suspicious email before the user, as we call them, you know, um, would click on it, we would actually take it out of their hands and detonate it, or meaning click on it, but within a sandbox to see how it behaves. Is it really a malware? And if it is a malware, now we have it contained. It also will give us indication on what would be the next step of that malware uh, so that we could use that knowledge to reverse engineer, perhaps to come up with a patch. Uh, we also can do quarantine on the network side where if we see a malware connecting back to the mothership, we call it uh, command and control center, we would then block that network connection. Similar to using a mask, we also have the ability to quarantine ports. Um, so we would close out a port which a virus infection could propagate. So there are a lot of you know variations of quarantine in the cyber world. One thing I would just add to that is that when we see outbreaks in specific settings, so for example, if a specific ward in a nursing home has a number of different infections. You may shut down the entire ward, have it go through cleaning, take off patients from that ward, and try to stop the virus propagation in its tracks. I see that as a similar analogous situation to what you're describing. When there have been outbreaks in hospitals, for example, the same type of thing may happen where an investigation is done to look at what the source of the infection may have been, which patients, which providers may have been infected, and then try to get to the root cause and stop the entire outbreak in its tracks. So I think that there are analogous situations in healthcare where we can see uh, sort of a hub of infection where you're trying to stop it in its tracks before it can spread further beyond that. So when we look at diseases like the novel coronavirus, which nobody knew about, what is the learning curve for the medical professional, and how did they come to understand how to catalog human infections? Um, we'll start with Manisha on that, but then see to follow up, how does that same concept apply to cyber infections? So there's always a steep learning curve whenever there is a new infection on the horizon, and one of the reasons that I love infectious diseases is because there's always something new and challenging that we have to face. But the one thing we do learn in our training is pattern recognition. And what I mean by that is we understand patterns of infections and how they present. So for example, the novel coronavirus is a respiratory infection. We understand that pattern. We understand the pattern of an infection moving from one person to another, either through droplets or potentially airborne mechanism. And what that means is the difference between droplet and airborne is that droplet, we usually think of this six feet distance, 
you know, that that's how far a droplet may progress. Airborne is something which hangs out in the air for potentially longer periods of time, potentially could be transmitted through duct work from maybe one floor to another. And so, you know, when you understand pattern recognition, when you have a new disease that comes to humanity, you start being able to distinguish and, and identify what type of virus might this be. Is this something like HIV, where we think you need blood-to-blood transmission of this particular pathogen? Or is this something more like a respiratory virus? And what became pretty clear early on is that the novel coronavirus acts in many ways similar to other coronaviruses. So coronaviruses are in human beings. There have been four that circulate sort of routinely that cause the common cold, and those are coronaviruses. That's what we've known about for decades. Then there was SARS that came out in the early 2000s, which sort of fell dead in its tracks, had made it, you know, in China, but then to a couple of other countries throughout the world, but then died there because it, it was easier to detect and it didn't have this asymptomatic spread that was very vigorous the way SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus causing COVID-19, does. And then there's been another one called MERS, which again was more in the Middle East several years ago, but did not make widespread impact the way the novel coronavirus does. And so, you know, we are able to sequence these viruses, which was done, you know, early in this pandemic. And once that sequence was out there, at the beginning of 2020, people could start tracking it better. And when you have that sequence, you look at it and compare it to the sequence of other viruses that we know. And that sequence was be able to tell us that this is within the family of coronaviruses. We know there's a whole family of influenza viruses, which change every year. We know that. This particular virus, we were able to catalog as one of human coronaviruses. And we know that there are coronaviruses that circulate in other animal kingdom populations as well, which is why, you know, when people say this may have come from bats, is because we have cataloged coronaviruses that occur in bats and how similar do they look phylogenetically to those that occur in bats. So I think when we as medical professionals see a new disease pattern and we see that it's overwhelming a human population, all of a sudden that tells us, okay, this might be something we have no immunity to because why would something that is overtaking so many different people. And then there are new manifestations that we're seeing with this coronavirus, which is why it's so much more deadly than the other coronaviruses that we normally see, which is this vigorous immune response and severe pneumonia, which is causing people to end up in the hospital, or things like clots and strokes and heart attacks and other manifestations that are so much more profound than regular coronaviruses cause, which is why this has become a national pandemic. So sort of with those thoughts in mind, Steve, what do you think about how this applies to cyber infections? I want to say for both worlds, there is a malicious agent at the heart of infection. And this agent could be encoded in RNA in your world um, for COVID-19 or Visual C++ for cyber world for, let's say, want to cry. I think the main thing is to understand, in, you know, for a biological virus, as you pointed out, the genetic sequence. And for cyber, it would be the virus signature. 
both of these would define uniquely the presence of the virus and also allow us to label it with a unique name that we could use to learn and, and figure out how to deal with it better. Um, this is how we can perform diagnostic testing, uh, come up with the remediation plan, and try to take steps, you know, to, to make things better for, you know, humans as well as, you know, computer networks. So for cyber infections, we have a catalog called Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures, or CVE in short. The CVE list um, contains a catalog of all known computer viruses to this date. And the CVE list feeds the U.S. National Vulnerability Database. It sounds okay, right? But often, there are so many new viruses that are either novel and coming up um, that we have not seen before. These are called zero-day threats. Uh, but also, we have seen massive mutations where we may know of one computer virus, but now, much like uh, the new strain in the UK, which is now, I think, found in New York City, uh, where I live, which is, you know, particularly alarming to me, there are mutated viruses. And in fact, um, the malware actors or the threat actors, they're doing more and more of that because they know that a 12-year-old with some scripting knowledge can get a hold of an antivirus and prevent an outbreak from happening as long as they have the signature from CVE and have an antivirus software installed on their machine. So it's not really effective, you know, from a propagation standpoint. So what we are seeing increasingly is that threat actors are coming up with new mutation for creating new variances um, of known viruses. So if you are strictly going by a virus signature, or vaccine, you know, um, in your world, this would not be very effective because it would only prevent a virus um, using that signature, but the signature will have to match the virus, you know, uh, itself, right? But then if it's mutated, then it will, you know, defeat the purpose. So what we do instead now is focus on the behavior or anomaly caused by any um, infection. So instead of trying to match every single virus uh, with an antivirus through signature, what we're doing more now is to profile the device to establish a baseline of healthy behavior, if you will. And then if we see any deviation or anomaly, then we would you know, consider that a suspect, and we would take proactive action to take it offline, quarantine, uh, and then try to study it to prevent any zero-day threats or zero-day outbreaks. So, so that now it has taken off, and then we are finding that to be more effective than trying to match uh, these virus strains with antivirus, if you will. So now we have uh, in the cyber world this whole behavior-based malware detection 
uh, that has led to the rise of this whole field called endpoint detection uh, and response, whereby we are profiling the device and then studying the behavior of the device. Um, and I want to go back to the, the super spreader concept a little bit. Uh, so this is especially important that we profile the devices if they could be a super spreader. In the cyber world, it could be, let's say, a domain controller, um, which is sitting kind of at the epicenter of all the connections, the millions of connections, the job of which is to actually kind of, you know, giving our users access to the resources. Another example of a super spreader in the cyber world could be um, that um, file sharing server, for example, where uh, people are storing massive amount of data. Uh, in healthcare professions, uh, actually, uh, Manisha, I think you guys used um, Box, uh, for example, to do that from what I've seen uh, with my healthcare clients. And that could become a massive infection point through which infections could propagate and, and spread, you know, leaps and bounds. So that's another, um, you know, server or a machine uh, that we need to carefully monitor constantly. And if we see any slightest deviation, then we need to take actions uh, right away. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Steve, that I think a lot of healthcare institutions um, and academic centers do use Box. And I can see the similarity of what you're saying, that if an infection were to get into Box, that could go to many, many potential end users uh, just the way a super spreader could potentially go to a party and infect a lot of people in one enclosed space. Yeah, one other thing I want to point out that I kind of forgot to mention was that the CVE, right, um, the Common Vulnerability and Exposure Catalog that I mentioned, it's been around for a while, uh, but, for instance, when it comes to cloud-borne malware, um, we did not include cloud-borne malware uh, in CVE until... 2020. So 2020 has been actually an interesting year for uh, infections, not only in the human world, but also for um, the cyber world, because um, 2020 was the first year we started cataloging cloud-borne malware in that CVE. Um, I, I thought that, you know, this year um, is significant for both our worlds. So that was interesting to me. So many similarities and overlaps. Uh, we know some of the prevention techniques used at the societal level. As Manisha had mentioned, there's self-isolation, isolation, quarantine, social distancing, wearing a mask, washing hands. These are all part of what in cybersecurity would be considered defense in depth, right, at the individual and societal level. But how does that translate to cyber infection, Steve? What does defense in depth look like in the cyber world? That's a great question, and one that will uh, uncover more similarities, really. So in cyber world, we have hygiene as well, and these hygienes um, go across various domains, such as network, um, endpoints, access control, data protection, so on and so forth. For network, um, the question of hygiene could be, are we using a firewall to block malicious traffic if we find one? Um, are we using intrusion prevention systems for attacks uh, that could be hidden in application traffic, for example? Everybody is on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter 
and and of course there are exploits that actually use uh, those applications uh, and and social media to infect and propagate. So how do you detect those? Are you using the tools necessary uh, on the network side? Then for secure access, are you using multi-factor authentication? And in fact, you know, what would be interesting is that maybe after I'm done with, you know, the list of um, the hygiene, it might be interesting to ask Manisha if they're using these, you know, in their hospital. So the other thing comes to mind is antivirus that we talked about. Um, and are you using behavior-based malware detection in addition to antivirus? Um, because as we talked about, with antivirus, it's not that effective anymore. Uh, then in data protection, are we using encryption so that um, we are not exposing ourselves to ransomware, things like that, uh, and keeping the key in a separate place, uh, which could be used to unencrypt and encrypt um, if, you know, misplaced. Um, so another really important point is that we could be doing two out of five, but that's not good enough. We have to do kind of all of it in concert. Hence the idea of defense in depth, because if you just uh, take one defense and not the other, you are leaving yourself vulnerable and exposed for these malwares to infect and propagate. So we kind of have to do it, you know, all of it, even though it, that sounds very hard, or as much as possible, right, and have like a strategy in place through which we are taking all the steps and, and following better hygiene, if you will, um, using a defense in depth concept, but also have a plan in place what's considered uh, an incident response plan in case we run into an incident. And you may have heard that in today's world, it's not if, but when you will be breached or hacked. Um, so you will have to operate under the assumption that it's not going to be our neighbors all the time. It will, you know, most likely be us at one point or another. So are we ready when that day comes? You know, Steve, I think it's really interesting as you were talking about the defense in depth, and I was thinking about the parallels with what we are and have been advising people to do throughout this pandemic. You know, people now understand all these concepts of isolation, quarantine, mask wearing, hand hygiene, and they've become second nature for a lot of people, which were completely foreign concepts to most people at the beginning of this pandemic. In a similar way, in the cyber world, you were asking, like, you know, what kinds of things do hospitals or universities have in place? And, you know, there are multiple of the things that you've talked about, the multi-factor authentication, you know, being able to encrypt emails. But, you know, all these things are tiring. A lot of times people want to just, you know, get into their Facebook account or just get into Twitter. You know, they don't want to have to constantly put in another password or go to their email and go again and, you know, have multi-factor authentication every time they're going into something. And I think the depth of the defenses that you were talking about, the same thing is true in terms of how people tire from the things we're asking them to do in terms of how to prevent spread of infection from human beings from one to the other. People don't want to have to continually social distance and wear a mask and wash your hands and stay away from the people you love. And in the same way, when people are using devices and using access to the Internet and other things, they don't want to have to constantly 
have to go through multiple different steps that we know are protective and we know are the right thing to do, and people just don't want to do it necessarily. Some of it can be automated, but then the more you automate it, you know, then the question is, well, let's say you save all your passwords. Well, then you let's say you have to change all those passwords. Well, they have to remember that you did that and change it on every device that you use it on. And this is where I think people tire from all these defensive mechanisms that we can put in place, both in the cyber world and for health. And that's why these viruses continue to propagate. One thing that comes to mind is as we design security solutions, we have to keep in mind, and I think same goes for healthcare, you know, how much of it is too much. So in the cyber world, in my world, um, whenever we want to implement a security solution, we have to take into consideration the adoption of it. So often we have to consider the security efficacy with the usability as well, because if the usability suffers as a result of introducing that security measure, then, you know, the adoption will suffer as well, therefore making or rendering that security solution ineffective at the end. So, you know, and kind of like translating that to, okay, how far do we take this self-isolation and quarantine and wearing masks and washing hands, after which our, you know, population will tire and rebel, right? And we see, we saw that in some parts of the country, right? L.A., I think, in one area, in one place where it happened, resulted in massive spike and, you know, overwhelming of the, the healthcare and, and hospitals, right? Uh, so that is something mm-hmm. that we always kind of try to keep in mind in the cyber world, and I think that, you know, the healthcare profession, you know, will have to as well. Absolutely. I think it's a struggle that transcends time and generation, right? Theory versus practice and and what can we really do effectively. Theoretically, things, yeah, that should work. But when it comes to putting it into practice, you've got those darn human beings that get involved, right? Exactly. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I do have one final question before we wrap up. Let's talk about how to eradicate a virus. And to your point, you know, there are reasons why viruses continue to exist and spread, whether they're biological or cyber. So what do vaccines and patching have in common? And what more needs to be done? What more in practice really can be done to eradicate viruses, both in the human and cyber realm? Manisha, let's start with you. So from my understanding of patching, it's when you basically identify a weakness in the system and you try to come up with a solution to fix that weakness. So in a sense, when human beings are not immune to a certain virus, that is a weakness in our immune system. And a vaccine basically allows the human body to build that patch, to build that immunity to the threat of a new virus that it might be exposed to. And to prevent a virus from transmitting in large scale throughout a population, as many people have heard, you need to develop herd immunity, meaning that about 70 to 80% of a population, somewhere in that range, it's been debated for the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, how much of the population will need to be immune 
in order to achieve herd immunity, whether it's going to be 60%, 70%, 80%. Right now, we're looking at about 15% of the population that's immune, which is crazy to imagine that after all this time, that's still all where we stand. Some communities are more than others, but overall, as an American population. So a vaccine is basically our solution to being able to provide humanity with that patch that it needs in its immune system to no longer be threatened by the given new virus. And in terms of your question of what remains to be done, as we know with this new UK variant that is circulating, B117, it appears to be more highly infectious. However, the vaccine seems to still protect. And RNA viruses mutate all the time. They mutate, you know, probably on average once a week. And when they accumulate enough mutations is when, as a variant, they may actually behave differently than another variant. And so this particular variant that we know about from the UK, there's one that's emerged in South Africa as well, and I'm sure there will be more that emerge as this coronavirus continues to circulate in the human population, is that we need to be able to, in real time, identify these new variants as they're happening. Because right now, the vaccine is working against these new variants. But a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, I don't know in how much time it will take. Is there going to be a COVID-21, a COVID-22, a COVID-25, which is not providing infection prevention with the current vaccine that we have? The current vaccines provide blueprints for which future vaccines can be modified on, and that's the work that needs to be done. We need to continually identify new variants in real time, and then as they're identified, identify whether the vaccine still provides prevention from getting that that virus, and if it does not, modify the vaccine template and start immunizing large swaths of the population. So if you ask me, where do we stand in this pandemic and what are the next years going to look like? I don't know in what order it's going to happen, but what I can say is that I'm hopeful that large populations get immunized to this virus. However, I will not be surprised if this virus is here to stay forever, that it will become seasonal where every winter we will see surges of this, but we will be able to vaccinate large parts of the population to new variants that spread so that it will eventually become like the flu is to the way that humanity has to deal with it, that we can reinvent vaccines and try to immunize people as much as possible during the seasons where they are most likely to circulate. So, Steve, what are your thoughts on that? Manisha, that's fascinating um, and also inspiring at the same time. In cyber world, kind of taking, you know, building on what you uh, mentioned accurately, patches create immunity in one computer from a certain weakness, um, similar to human infection. Often we call this weakness vulnerability, hence the, you know, common vulnerability index that I talked about before. In cyber world, a patch essentially runs a code that blocks suspicious exploits. 
In cyber world, it usually is coded in, let's say, um, Visual C++, whereas um, in uh, human world or biological um, virus case, it is, you know, RNA coded. So we are running a patch against a weakness very similar to vaccine is used to boost immunity, but we are doing it in a computer as opposed to a human. Now, similar to what Manisha was saying, what would make this whole process more effective is if we could, in real time, know whether I'm affected. So the constantly we have to ask ourselves, am I affected or infected, and what can we do if we are? And that would have to come from, in my mind, having access to real-time infection data, but also sharing of information where if someone is infected, especially with a, a new strain or a mutated virus or variant of a virus that we have never experienced before, they would share that information through which knowledge will transfer and we will, the society will learn. Unless we do this, I feel like our progress would be limited. It's especially the case in the cyber world because there is this stigma associated with the breach, uh, especially for a large, reputable business. It's often the case that businesses would not come forward and admit until like a year goes by that there was a breach as a result of which they lost um, customer-sensitive information because there are fines, right? There, There is regulation now, um, and... Also, there is reputational damage. Uh, there's the, the, the brand damage that, you know, occurs as a result of admitting to a breach, which really hinders our progress. And I think that needs to be dealt with if we want to get better as a, you know, society in the cyber world, if you will, or community in the cyber world, because that's more important than just dealing with one virus or one variant at a time. I think that if we come together and partner with each other and not withhold valuable information from each other, uh, that is when we will have a true shot at, you know, progress, at, you know, through sharing that real-time data. Uh, am I infected? And how is it that I'm dealing with it, with, you know, the next business? or next, you know, healthcare organization, uh, so that they don't need to spend months studying and, and learning how can they, you know, remediate an infection with a new strain. When that happens, I think that our rate of, you know, remediation would exponentially improve. Wonderful. That's a nice closing statement, Steve. Stephen Marisha, thank you so much. This has really been such a fascinating conversation. I love looking at cyber through the lens of humanity and um, the ways that humanity can help cyber professionals look through a different lens. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC, and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. 
Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app, and stay tuned for our next podcast. Interested in being a guest on our podcast? Visit rsaconference.com to learn more about how to become a contributor. 